Let's stand together at this time. Uh, we're going to read uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just one verse, verse 15. A great declaration. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Christmas and gifts go together. Uh, when I was in high school, we read a lot of books, a lot of stories for our literature class. And that was great because I liked reading stories a lot better than I liked learning grammar and uh, diagramming sentences. The theory was that by reading good writing, we would learn how to write. And there's some validity in that. Uh, although I, when I uh, managed to get in seminary, I rued the fact that we had not spent more time uh, in grammar. Uh, but uh, one of the stories that we read uh, was actually written in 1905. No, that was not when I was going to school. I just want to make that clear. Uh, but it was written by a man named O. Henry and a very famous story called The Gift of the Magi or Magi, whichever way you want to pronounce it. Um, Sorry for the spoiler, uh, but it told the story, if you haven't read it, of a young couple in the midst of those hard times. His name was James Dillingham Young, and his wife's name was Della. Both found the perfect gift for their spouse, but the problem was neither of them had the money to buy it. They worked and tried all the way up to Christmas Eve, and as the story went, uh, James had a pocket watch, but he had no chain. And Della found a beautiful chain, just what he needed. He had found a set of ornamental combs, beautiful combs. His wife, Della, had long, beautiful hair. And uh, so he thought that would be just perfect for her. Della ended up selling her hair to a hairdresser for $20 to buy him the chain for his watch. Only to find out that he had sold his watch to buy her the combs for her hair. Even with that spoiler, if you've not read the story, you ought to read it. O. Henry was quite a writer, and uh, it was a good story set at another time. You see, Christmas and gifts just go together. When we started this series a few weeks ago, uh, we started with the doctrine of Christmas, and, and that was the time that I told you that uh, taking Christ out of Christmas would be like taking heat out of fire or taking wet out of water. It's just there'd be no Christmas without Christ. And it is the fact that God is the giver and the giver of this incredible gift of His Son, as Paul describes it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thanks be unto God for His indescribable gift. Now, this passage comes in the midst of a discussion that Paul had with the church at Corinth. A drought had hit in Judea, and uh, the people were suffering there. He talked repeatedly about the poor saints at Jerusalem. He had gone to the Gentile churches encouraging them to take up an offering for them. 
just a pure gift of benevolence from one group of churches scattered everywhere, Gentile churches, to the church in Jerusalem to help the poor people, the starving people, the struggling people, laboring under the oppressive tax burden of the Romans compounded by the drought. The church at Corinth was eager to help, and they had pledged a very large gift, and it was now time for them to make good on those pledges. And so Paul sent to them this letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, reminding them of their pledges, reminding them of how important it was that they gather this up together. And as he concludes that chapter, we find our text today. Thanks be unto God for his indescribable, unspeakable gift. Christmas is indeed a great time for charitable giving, for gifts of benevolence. And I want to commend you as a church family for the many things that you have done uh, in this holiday season to help out those who are less fortunate in our community and those who are struggling uh, to try to provide uh, for their families to uh, just keep the bills paid and the, and the heat turned on. I mean, thank you. Thank you for the many ways that you give. But we'll have to all admit that no matter how devoted we are to benevolent giving, our efforts will always fall short of what God did for us. Talk about a gift to the needy. Indescribable. Unfathomable. God's gift to us. Paul would famously use the expression the gift of God in two of his epistles in reference to this. Now he used it in other uh, ways at other times, but specifically in reference to God's gift for us. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, he tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the gift of God. The wages of sin, that is what our sin deserves. That's what our sin has earned. The wages of sin is death, both physical death. There'd be no death without sin. And spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace sin you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. The gift of God. Our salvation through Jesus Christ is not according to our works. But before Paul the Apostle then would record these great passages and these great doctrinal truths, Jesus our Lord himself would use it. Uh, the gift of God as he would talk to two different people about salvation and God's gift of salvation in successive chapters in John's Gospel, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. One of those people that Jesus dealt with in John chapter 3 was a religious leader. He was successful, 
well-connected, respected, a community leader, a master of Israel, a teacher of the law of Moses. He came to Jesus by night, the Bible says, out of fear that he might be seen coming to Jesus. No doubt Nicodemus, like all of the Jews of his day, or almost all of them, believed that their keeping of the law of Moses, their religious beliefs and their religious practices and disciplines would make them right with God, righteous, guarantee them a place in heaven. Paul would describe it this way, he said, they being ignorant, speaking of the Jewish people in that day, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness did not submit to the righteousness of God. They thought that righteousness would come by their works. But Jesus responded quickly to Nicodemus with a simple and yet profound statement. You must be born again. No amount of religious service or devotion, no amount of works, no amount of doing all the right things and avoiding all the wrong things was going to make Nicodemus righteous in God's sight. Or to put it another way, none of those things were going to qualify him to go to heaven when he died. It was not going to happen. Nicodemus had a deep problem, and Jesus summarized it in John chapter 3 and verse 6 when he said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, the fleshly birth produces a fleshly body that does fleshly things. It takes then a spiritual birth to produce a spiritual body that does spiritual things. He had returned to this later in John's gospel. In John chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus again, It is the spirit that quickens or gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. As he dealt with Nicodemus, then Jesus gave what is perhaps one of the famous, most famous New Testament passages. In verse 16 of John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. None of us had a single thing to do with our fleshly birth. We had nothing to do with it. It was the love of our parents that came together that caused us to be conceived. It was the love of our mother that caused us to be brought into this world. None of us had anything to do with it. I promise you, if I would have had anything to do with my fleshly birth, I'd be different. Number one, I'd be taller. I always wanted to be 6'5". Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be a tenor singer. I, I'm a baritone at, at, at best, but I always wanted to sing the high notes. And I don't know how I'd be tall and a tenor singer too, but it does happen every now and then. I'd be dark-complected so I wouldn't get sunburned all the time, and I'd have had straight hair. I hate these curls. <laughs> the only thing I really liked about me was my eyes. I always liked my eyes. Aside from that, 
I'd have changed everything else. I didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't either. Not a thing. Not one thing did any of us have to do with our physical birth. Jesus said it, that which is born of the flesh, flesh is, is flesh. The flesh can produce a fleshly body that does fleshly things, but that's it. But then there's that which is born of the Spirit, he says. Spirit is. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. We combine that then with what he said in John chapter 6. It is the Spirit that gives us life. The flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit that gives to us eternal life. It is the Spirit that can make us right with God. It is that spiritual birth then that we have to have. There are those in the world today who would say that as we have nothing to do with our physical birth, so also we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. That God sits in heaven and picks out who's going to be saved and who's not. Folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. And you don't have to look any further than John chapter 3 and verse 16, where Jesus told Nicodemus that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so while we didn't have anything at all to do with our physical birth, our spiritual birth is something else. It is promised to those exclusively who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, believing, we might think, is a work in itself. It's not. Paul made that clear for us in Romans chapter 4. I don't have this up on the screen for you today. You just listen. He said in Romans chapter 4 uh, that to him that worketh not... But to him, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, then his faith is counted unto him for righteousness. To him that worketh not, but believes. See, believe is the very opposite, uh, theologically speaking, of the idea of works. We can work for it, but if we did, it's not by faith. And if we have faith, then it's not by works. And it's not by works. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2. I've already read that. Not of works lest any man should boast. Albert E. Brumley wrote a lot of good gospel hymns for the Stamps Baxter Music Company. Many of you don't know him, I understand that, but we love to sing I'll Fly Away. Most of you know that one. Uh, I'll meet you in the morning. He set me free, great song. But for some strange reason, Albert E. Brumley, who wrote so many good gospel songs, also wrote a song called Surely I Will. And I bring this up because it is a theology that somehow was buried apparently in his heart and is in the hearts of a lot of people today. It was in Nicodemus's heart. He's, and this is what uh, Brumley's song says, If working and praying has any reward, then surely some morning I'll meet my dear Lord. With Jesus as pilot, I'll climb the high hill. If anyone makes it, then surely I will. If I work hard enough, and if I pray enough, and if I do enough, and if I climb hard enough, then surely, surely, Lord, I'll make it. Let me tell you something. Working and praying, no amount of religious devotion, no amount of religious works is going to qualify anybody to spend eternity in heaven with God. If we could work our way there, then Jesus died for nothing. And if I could say that any stronger, by the way, I would. 
Nicodemus, though, had that confidence that by keeping the law, that with his religious devotion, by being a good person, by avoiding all the bad things and doing all the good things, that he'd be right with God. And the only reason that he was that way is because he didn't know about God's gift, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus was ignorant of the gift of God. Very next chapter, Jesus then makes a trip through Samaria. In fact, John chapter 4 begins with the story of him dealing with his disciples, and this was his exact words, I must needs go through Samaria. I have to go. They came to Jacob's well. The disciples went into the village to buy lunch. And there in the middle of the day, there was a woman, a Samaritan woman, came to that well. Amazingly, Jesus, though he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan, and the Jews and the Samaritans, as we used to say down home, don't jihaw very well. They don't, they, they don't get along. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans, much less ask them for anything. The Samaritans didn't do much for the Jews either. And, but here's Jesus sitting there at the well, and he says to this unnamed woman, give me a drink. She marveled. She was amazed that he would speak to her, amazed that he was willing to drink water that would be drawn out of that well by her Samaritan hands. Jesus then would answer her question, how do you do this? Why? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus, verse 10, answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John chapter 4, verse 10 if you knew the gift of God. Nicodemus and the woman at the well could not have possibly been any more different than what they were. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, well-respected, a leader, a devoted religious follower of the Jews' religion. This woman was a Samaritan, they worshipped a false god. They had an idol, an idol system that had been built there generations before in the mountain of Samaria, where the Jews worshipped God at the temple in the place where God had chosen in Jerusalem to set his name under the Old Testament economy. The Samaritans worshipped false gods. She was an idolater. Verse 16, Jesus would say simply to her, go call your husband and come back here. Go call your husband. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus then responded, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. 
It is presumption on our part to assume that this woman had been married and divorced five times. It was possible. It could have happened. She may have been abandoned by five husbands. That was not uncommon. She may have buried five husbands. That too was not uncommon. She had been married five times and Jesus would say to her, the man whom you now have, that is the one you're living with now, is not your husband. And John chapter 4 makes that point very clearly for us. If, and that is that Jesus does indeed recognize a difference between being married and just living together. She was now living with a man who had refused to marry her for whatever reason. As their interaction then played out, she said, well, I perceive you're a prophet, so let's talk about religion. <laughs> you know, men and women have always had an inclination, myself included. It's a whole lot easier to talk about religion than it is to talk about our sins. Amen? Let's change the subject. <laughs> You folks say that we got to worship in Jerusalem. We worship up here. Oh, but Jesus cut through all of that when he said, you worship, you know not what. You've got a problem. Same problem that Nicodemus had. He, she had a religious system that she knew about, but it wasn't dealing with the deep problem that she had, and that was the problem of her sins. The fact is that this woman at the well needed the exact same thing that Nicodemus needed. She needed to be born again. She brings up the Messiah. Well, I know that the Messiah comes, verse 25, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. If you read the gospel accounts, you'll find that multitudes approach Jesus asking him, Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Jesus wouldn't answer him. But here, with the woman at the well, he says it clearly. I am the Messiah. How did the woman respond? She believed him. How do we know? Verse 27 of John chapter 4. The disciples came to him and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, What seekest thou? What why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. And said to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? The gift of Christmas. The indescribable gift. The gift of God. Nicodemus was a good man, a religious man, a well-known man, highly respected man, a leader of the Jews, a master in Israel, a teacher, a scholar of biblical truth. Surely Nicodemus would make it. Surely Nicodemus, good man that he was, would make it to heaven. Nicodemus didn't know about the gift of God. Religious man that he was, 
He still needed the gift of God. The Samaritan woman, married five times, living with a man who was not her husband. Not well respected. Not highly regarded. Not a master in Israel. She was trying to worship God and she didn't even know which God to worship. One man, we might say, was very close to God by all outward appearance. Another woman living far, far from him. But Jesus talked to them both about the same gift, the gift of God. The same gift of God, you see, applies equally well to religious people as to irreligious people. It applies equally well to a little boy like me who grew up in church all his life. His parents were Christians. Grandparents were Christians. Great-grandparents were Christians. I'm not saying we were perfect. Far from it. I was raised in church all my life. But you know what? I needed the gift of God. Your story may be completely opposite to that today. This morning might be the first time you've been in church and you don't even remember when. You may have lived a struggling life, a difficult life. A life marked by a lot of failures and a lot of bad choices. But I want you to know, God has a gift for you too. Nobody is so far from God that the gift of God can't reach out to you. Nobody can be so close to God that they still don't need the same gift. The gift of God, the gift of Christmas, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the Bible presents us with a very simple choice. We've either got to believe in ourselves and trust in ourselves. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're believing in yourself and trusting in yourself, you're going to let yourself down. Or you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know how that's going to go. Because God has given his word, whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gift of Christmas. Would you receive it? Let's stand together, please.